Hello, everyone. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. We've had uh, quite an interesting five or six hours here as I'm recording this at uh, around one in the morning, the the night of and after the Iowa caucus. And I think a lot of people are staying up late uh, trying to figure out if the Democrats will get it together and um, announce the results. And if not, what the plan is going to be. So um, we shall see. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and publish uh, this podcast that I had planned uh, for today. And if need be, I will record an emergency podcast system uh, version of Rumble, um, either sometime during the night or in the morning, as soon as we learn more about what has happened uh, in Iowa. And I'm just going to leave it at that. I have my own thoughts about this. Um, I'm sure you do too. Uh, Once again, we have more proof that our broken electoral system has to change. There's absolutely no doubt about this. Um, So, you know, before we get started too, let me just um, thank our underwriters uh, for today. We've got two, two underwriters. Oh, my God, we've got three. We've got three underwriters today. See, this is what happens. You, We hit our three millionth download since we started six weeks ago uh, over the weekend. And um, uh, more people are wanting to help support this podcast and what we're saying and getting the word out to more and more people. So thank you for that. And I just, I would like to um, do that right now in person. I'd first like to thank um, our main underwriter uh, today. Uh, which is uh, Nat Geo, National Geographic, and uh, their incredible documentary that has been nominated for the Academy Awards, which are this coming Sunday. Um, uh, the name of the film, the documentary, is called The Cave, and it is powerful, and um, you don't want to miss it. Uh, Nat Geo is the producer of it, and I, I thank uh, both the filmmakers of this film and Nat Geo for underwriting uh, today's show and for producing such a powerful film uh, set in the midst of the current uh, civil war in Syria. And um, it's already won uh, many awards and uh, Film Critics Awards, uh, DGA, Directors Guild Awards. Um, it's uh, certainly one of the most lauded films uh, of the year and one of the most powerful ones. I really hope you all get a chance to, to see it. Um, so thank you, Nat Geo, for underwriting today's episode of Rumble. I also want to thank uh, the good people at MTV, our uh, a new underwriter uh, for Rumble. Kind of cool. MTV Films also uh, is a nominee this year for the Oscars. Uh, the great Sheila Nevins, who all of us documentary filmmakers have known forever. She was in charge of all the documentaries at HBO for years, all the great HBO documentaries. Um, has, many of them have won Oscars before. But I think she re- she'd retired and then came out of retirement to go over to MTV Films and and uh, sort of you know run things there. And in her first year there, comes up with another Academy Award nomination uh, for this powerful film called St. Louis Superman. It's a film about uh, an individual who runs for and gets elected to the Missouri uh, State House, but he's from Ferguson, Missouri, 
And if you remember, Ferguson um, was the place where the police officer, a uh, police officer shot him, where the police officer uh, shot to death an unarmed teenager by the name of Mike Brown. And, um, and of course, what resulted from that were um, huge protests, curfews, and all sorts of, um, you know, police response in terms of attacking the citizens of the community. It was just brutal. It was awful. This was just a few years ago. I'm sure most of you remember it. And now, and now this um, documentary short has been nominated for the Oscars this Sunday. It's called St. Louis Superman. I thank them, I thank the filmmakers, I thank Sheila Nevins, and I thank MTV for being a new underwriter of my podcast and giving me voice uh, to do what I do. Greatly appreciative of that. And then finally, our, 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 first, uh, our first ever underwriter uh, who signed on, Anchor Podcast a platform. They are the free podcast people. Anybody wants to start their own podcast, you know, you go to their site, their app, um, or their, their site is uh, anchor.fm and they will, you can learn all right there how you too can have a podcast and they will get it on Apple and Spotify and every place uh, for you. And um, so They've been helpful to me, and they will help you. Thank you very much, Anchor Podcast. Uh, your platform and your work to democratize audio is appreciated by all of us. So I sat down with uh, the great Naomi Klein uh, last week. Um, well, we were both uh, in Iowa uh, campaigning for Bernie, and our paths crossed, which was a very wonderful thing. And uh, she is a, an important person to all of us. If you haven't heard of her, uh, check check her out online. Her books, her current book is called On Fire. So um, let's give a let's give a listen now to what we recorded just a few days ago in the great state of Iowa. This is Rumble, and this is Michael Moore. Welcome to my podcast. We are uh, still on the road here in Iowa. It's been an amazing week, and today I'm spending uh, all of my day with one of my heroes. You don't mind me calling you a great thinker, do you? Is that <laughs> uh, because the reason I don't like that in a way is because you're also one of the great doers, and um, we have a lot of great thinkers and we have a lot of great activists, and you have married the two for many, many years. I am, of course, talking to and about uh, Naomi Klein, the great Naomi Klein, author, uh, activist, uh, filmmaker, so many things, and I think I probably first learned of you with your book, uh, No Logo. And uh, since then, she's written The Shock Doctrine and has a book out um, over the last few months uh, called On the Fire. First of all, thank you for, <laughs> for doing you, this. Thank you, Michael. I'm thrilled to be with you. You grew up in uh, Canada, yeah. uh, if I'm correct. Uh, was it Vancouver or Toronto? Um, it was actually Montreal. It was I, Montreal. I, I was okay. born in Montreal. I And um, I went to Toronto for university um, and then my whole family, my parents moved, uh, moved to British Columbia. Right. So, um, so I'm connected to those three places. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, your writings and your work over the year, um, inspired many things, many actions. Uh, you know, you are, I would say one of the, the godmothers of Occupy Wall Street. I mean, this is, uh, uh, a lot of the thinking around that came out of, of you and others, uh, 
but you have not been afraid to deal and grapple with things that oftentimes we'll say liberals are you know nervous about saying the word capitalism for instance how did you <laughs> how did you get to be who you are and how much of that is because you got to grow up in canada it's a it's a I don't know if there's a simple answer to that question. There probably isn't. <laughs> but there's a worldview that yeah, develops somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say that I don't think I was writing as frontally about capitalism all of this time. You know, when I wrote when I wrote No Logo, I was writing about corporate power and corporate rule, but maybe I was a little shy to actually say, you know, this is a, this this is a system um, that that has entered into this predatory phase, but it's built into the DNA of the system. And it's something I've learned as I went along. You know, I was, I, I, I was a child of the 80s and I came, you know, became an adult in, in the 90s. And it was the peak era of triumphant um, market fundamentalism. And I was, you know, I, I was always on the, I guess, on the left. I would, as a student activist, I was uh, very, uh, involved in in women's issues, um, and I was the first first issues I wrote about were had to do with sexual violence on campus. Um, and but I do think that growing up in Canada shaped my worldview. I live in the states now. Um, I have dual citizenship. Um, I just say this, you know, to make it clear that that I don't represent foreign interference in the American election because we are here in Iowa campaigning for Bernie. Um, but you know, I'm legit. I, I live in the states and, and I'm allowed to vote and all that. Um, but I, 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 the reason why I'm American is is because my my parents are American. My grandparents were American. My parents moved to Canada in the late '60s because my father was a war resistor didn't want didn't want to go to Vietnam, and and then we ended up staying in Canada. We went back to the States for a little bit. Um, but when he went, when he and your mom went to Canada yeah. as a war resistor, that meant that at that time, it was probably hard for him to come back and visit family or whatever in the in the States. I mean, maybe for younger people to understand this. Yeah, it was, I mean, we were, it was only my nuclear family, my, my, my parents, my brother and I, who, um, who lived in Canada. Everybody else was in the United States, including my half sister who was in California. Um, and, and, and the rest of our whole extended family was, was across the border. And there, and, and I remember growing up that, that borders were always stressful. Um, and we did cross the border, but it was always sort of stressful. My parents still had their American passports they were worried that things would come up on a search, but at that point, you know, there weren't the same kinds of, there wasn't the same kind of computerization. Later, there was the Carter pardon that mm -hmm. made it less stressful to, to cross the border. But my, right. my parents actually um, did move back when I was very young in the 70s um, and, and actually decided that they wanted to return to Canada, not as war resistors, but because my by father- choice. By choice, because my father worked in healthcare. My father's a family doctor, and um, and these were the years that 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 Medicare was 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 becoming a national program. It had been a, a provincial program, and it was really getting rolled out nationally. And he wanted to be part of a healthcare system that um, was truly universal, and he right. wanted to be part of building that. And 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 he had been very upset about his experience working in the U S healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I sometimes say we, 
like we left because of the war, but we stayed for the universal public health care. <laughs> <laughs> right. The so so basically he he was refusing. And I should I should apologize to you yeah. because I feel like there is you know I don't know how closely you read on fire or on yeah, yeah. fire emoji yeah. as you yeah. mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my idea. And yeah. I did have to fight well, to have an emoji. Right. I'm like, we are in a post-literate world. But my publish, some of my publishers had this weird idea that words still matter. We should still use them. Mm-hmm. But luckily, my American publisher was just like, yeah, let's just go with the emoji. And, yeah. and um, well, I love that. <laughs> I like it too. Um, but, but Just before we leave yeah. your, your parents for but a second. But I wanted to yeah. say, I should apologize to yeah. you because I, I have... I have an essay in that book where I talk about growing up as a, as as a, as a child of war resistors, and that their vision of Canada was this super idealized vision of Canada as right. Americans. Right. That I said is a little bit like watching, like growing up inside a Michael Moore movie, where like yeah. in Canada no one locks yeah. their doors and yeah. everything's perfect. Right. And in Canada we always complained about this. We're yeah. like, we have problems, Michael Moore. Yeah, like, no, I, I hear this. We have colonial violence and we have racism and yeah, we hear- suck. We suck as well on lots of other levels. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I should. <laughs> I hear this all but the time from is, Canadians. They're they're just uh, oh, it's so it's so rough up here, and it's and and we and do we do well, of course fun. because wherever yeah. you live, I mean, um, you can go to France and Sweden and hear them complain about their about their healthcare system because every system has yeah. problems, every country has problems. Um, it yes, it's about power. Those who have power are usually the people with the money, and that's true in. Canada, hello, Conrad Black. I mean, yeah. this is like, yeah. it, 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 but but I think because as Americans, the, like the first time you go to Canada, you're just stunned by so many things that probably as Canadians just take for granted because it's just their daily life. Well, but, yeah, and I mean, now I'm us, in the states, and you know, I have a seven year old, and um, you know, he, he he came home came home from school last year, first grade little edgy and and uh, you know took some sort of probing but it, it turned out that they had had you know one of these drills where it was the essentially shooter drill. yeah mm. uh, and he's had you know he's had four of them in his little life now and that's mm. you know when I tell my Canadian friends that they they can't believe mm. it they can't believe it so there are you know there right. are there are there are real differences and we do need to talk about those differences without without idealizing it but I do you know I I, I always had the sense I, as somebody who was, who grew up in Canada, but was very much engaged in political debates in the United States, that there was something about these big political and economic victories that my parents' generation had won, right? right? Like universal public health care, like the CBC, having a public broadcaster that is fully funded and is, is the main that it, it, you know, is the system of information that holds the country together, that creates a common conversation across a vast land, right? Mm -hmm. Like the national film board of Canada, where my mother worked, which is, you know, a government funded uh, film agency. And my mother was part of a little group of feminist troublemakers who had the first women's film studio. And they were making films as I was growing up that were very much counterculture films. Um, that you know, that's unheard of in this con- in this country, right? right? And right. so, um, I I remember when Conrad Black. Um, you should explain who he is. Um, he's just, I, I. Oh wow, that <laughs> he just hates me so much. Like he's written, he writes these like four thousand word columns just attacking me. So like anything I say is just gonna like give him an excuse to just be. Oh, you just should wear that. You vile all over me. I know, but Conrad that's... Black doesn't matter. 
you know. Right. <laughs> uh, he is a criminal, a uh, convicted criminal who's got released and uh, used to own a newspaper chain. And uh, The Murdoch of Canada. Yeah. Is that I, safe to say? Um, sort of. Yeah, it is safe to say. And and when he um, launched this, this new national newspaper, the National Post in Canada, he said that the goal was... It was, I forget ex- the exact words, but it was something like Canadians had to stop deriving their identities from these bureaucracies, right? Mm. And, and that he was setting out in, to, to delegitimize the healthcare system, the CBC, you know, these public institutions that he, that he saw as, he, he, you know, he saw it as, as so lowly that people identified like, like what it means to be Canadian with Medicare, which I mean, Canadians will tell you what again and again, like being Canadian is part of it is having universal public health care. And that's why candidates on the right and the left always run promising to protect universal public health care. Doesn't matter how right wing they are. And we've had some very right wing prime ministers. You cannot touch it now that we have it because it is so beloved. Mm-hmm. And what, what was interesting about the way Conrad Black phrased that is it just showed how little he understands about the relationship between these programs that he dismisses as bureaucracies and the values of a country, right? Like, I, I mean, saying everybody has the right to health care and the same kind of health care, regardless of, 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 of whether you're rich or poor, whether you live in a remote community or not. And once again, it isn't, as, it isn't what it should be. Um, and, right. and particularly for indigenous people. Right. Um, and, and they're attacking it because they can't attack it front, frontally. They chip and chip and chip away at it, right? Right, right. But the, the, it is an expression of, of our values, right? right. That, that we say everybody has, like we value everyone's life. Um, mm. and, um, and it is about the kind of people we want to be. It expresses something really deep about us that we are never going to say that because you lack money, your life isn't a value. Right. And so it's, so it, I think the, the Canada question is, I learned that these, that, ha, that, that when you make these big decisions, um, it's not about a bureaucracy. It's not about government. It's about values and it changes the values of a country. It changes who people are and it changes people's horizons, right? Like I'm so struck now, once again, being in the States and teaching students with these huge debt loads, I mean, we have student debt in Canada, but it is nothing like here in the United States. What is it like? Well, I mean, our university, like we have, first of all, we don't have private universities. Um, so we only have public universities. And why don't you have private universities? Because David Frum just goes to Harvard. Right. Oh, boy. Because <laughs> they don't want Canadian Harvard. They actually want Harvard, Harvard for their kids. No, but I, I don't know if it's the same reason, but uh, when I was in Finland uh, working on one of my films, I met with the the Secretary of Education in their cabinet, and she said um, it's essentially illegal to have a private school in Finland. Um, there are exemptions for religion and you know things like that. But I said, well, why? Why? I mean, so you don't have a Harvard of Finland? And she said, oh yes, no, no, we have we have nineteen Harvards. Every university, which is public, um, has to reach the same standard, or at least attempt to whether you live up in Lapland and, or, or you live here in Helsinki. Um, and, and they are, um, they are very serious about this and they, because they don't want anybody 
nobody should have a leg up because they have money to go to a better school. I don't know if that's the same reason in Canada, but it, uh, it was, it was, she also said that making the rich and the children of the rich go to the same schools as everybody else with the same standards, the same quality as, you know, as much as same can be in any human organization. But, um, they, uh, that it made, it made, they believe that if these wealthy kids have to sit next to and live and work with and, and get along with the other, that maybe they won't grow up as adults to be so vicious and cruel simply because they may end up with more money because they are children of the rich, but maybe they'll have a little touch of empathy. I, you know, I wonder if that's explicit in the thinking in Canada. I think for when it comes to post-secondary education and it comes to the healthcare system, there's definitely an explicit idea that if there's a two-tiered system, then the wealthy will just um, put their kids in the in the in the private system and right. and and let the public system rot. Um, and so the idea of, 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 of that, well, we need, you know, and they use all this language, we need healthcare choice. Yes, we can have Medicare, but let us have our fancy private, you know, hospitals. And, um, and everybody knows that if that's the case, that the, that the public hospitals will just be, so you don't um, have fancy private hospitals either. Um, no, I mean, whatever hospital you go to in Canada, it, it, you pay through Medicare. I mean, some of them are through your taxes. You ha yeah, you have your little Medicare yeah. card. Yeah. I mean, and this is very personal to me because you know, my like I've I'm, unfortunately my family's been through some really catastrophic illnesses, and my mother had a, a devastating stroke when she was forty six. I was seventeen, mm. and um, she she had two strokes. It knocked out everything except, mm. uh, including her breathing. She could blink. That's mm. all the movement she had. It turned out she had a brain tumor that had bled twice and she needed a life-saving operation that wasn't available. She needed to be, she needed to be helivacked. Um, she was in hospital and rehabilitation for, for two years. Um, and, you know, in the end has, has gotten back uh, enough of um, movement to be able to um, get around in a scooter and, and, and she's made a, a, a remarkable recovery. But this was a, a truly, truly catastrophic illness that required, you know, every, um, uh, you know, ev every benefit that our system was able to to afford. She was in the neurological ICU for months, mm. um, and, and it, we, did, it didn't bankrupt your family. We left with, I think it was a it was a twenty four dollar bill for cable in the hospital, um, wow. in one of the hospital rooms. Um, I mean, wow. that's it after after and and no paperwork and no mm. and you know it and and you know when a family goes through something like that you know it takes everything that a family has to to survive it and and you know when i think about having that experience compounded with, and and you are fighting you're fighting you're you're advocating and we were so privileged to have a doctor in the family who was able to advocate for her and in many different turns that advocacy probably saved her life um, so it's not like it was easy, uh, um, right. but the, but w what we didn't have to do was fight with insurance companies. We didn't have to argue with anybody about what was covered and what wasn't covered. We didn't, ha you know, just since I moved to the States, I mean, the difference for me, and I've only been living here for a year and a half. I mean, just the amount of, of just of paperwork that we get just for basic, um, you know, checkups right. is, 
vastly more than my family dealt with for a truly catastrophic illness. Okay, but you did point out there's no free cable in a Canadian hospital. So <laughs> there are some drawbacks. Let's just, I mean, now I'm trying to now not be so uh, know, myopic yeah. about uh, Canada and just sort of, um, you know, understand that it's it's more different. Well, the last time my mom was in hospital, she, she, she broke her hip and she, oh. she confessed to me that she had become addicted to say yes to the dress. Yes, right. Um, uh, yeah. So she she canceled her, her cable voluntarily because of that. Yeah, say yeah. yes to the dress. Um, this is the wedding dress show yeah. on one of the cable channels where you go and you try on dresses. <laughs> so, okay, so we're still trying to figure out what's so... Uh, and listen, I know, like I said, Canada has its, its problems, but I often say to my fellow Americans... Uh, first of all, don't go up to Canada and, br and break into their homes just because I told you their doors were unlocked. Uh, you know, I mean, that that's a very true scene in the film. That's uh, right there in downtown Toronto. Um, and it's uh, 730 at night. And uh, we did the average. I did a whole I filmed a whole bunch. Of them, and 67 percent of the doors. This is Bowling for Columbine. Is bowling this for was... Columbine. 67 percent of the doors. I was I got to tell you something. I had this idea to put that scene in the film like three years before I did it. And all the time we're making Bowling for Columbine, every time we're in Canada filming, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I can't do it. I'm in America. I, the idea of opening somebody's door and just walking in, in this country and coming out alive, it's a 50, 50 situation there. <laughs> and, and even there in Toronto, I'm like, Oh man, you know, they have guns here. It's a big well, nation remember, of hunters. I remember that, and you know, we 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 have there's guns in Canada too. Um, yes, there are many guns, but hunting guns mostly. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, to, to be honest with you, like the 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 event that turned me into an activist was it was when I was in first year university in 1989, um, and a gunman went into University of Montreal oh, right. and, and kill and killed 14 women because he said they were fucking feminists. So mm -hmm. you know, but that. It, that was, and, and there have been, there have been mass shooting events in Canada and stabbing events. And we had horrific mass killing at a mosque in Quebec city after Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember, you know, when people talk about bowling for Columbine and they would say, I can't believe Michael Moore said that we don't lock our doors. We lock our doors. And then, and then, and then somebody would point out, but he meant like when you're home, you don't lock your doors. Right. Yeah. And they were like, oh yeah, we never lock our doors. Yeah, so, oh. I mean, right. we, we lock our doors when we're out and when we're going to sleep. Right. Right. But especially in, especially in urban areas in, in the United States, but also suburban areas, uh, people, you're automatically trained to when you come home and you shut the door and it's a night, uh, evening, you lock the door I and mean, there's nothing you don't think anything that you don't think that's weird in the U.S., but uh, and, and it it depends on the it certainly depends on the neighborhood in Canada for sure. Um, but look, yeah, but even laws like when I, <laughs> change cultures, right? Like it's not right. like we that we love laws. It's not that we no, love bureaucracy. I it's agree. That I, we we the, these actually change yes. the culture of how we relate to each other, the kinds of dreams we're allowed to have. You know, if Correct. you have debt. Um, for, you know, it, it, you know, you know, you're going to be graduating with a hundred thousand dollars in debt. That will shape what you imagine for yourself in your life, right? Right. In but, the U.S., when you graduate with that hundred thousand yeah, dollars, yeah. Um, you know, if if your healthcare is attached to you as a person, as opposed to your job, um, 
you know, that, that, that change that, that transforms your horizons. It's the difference if you're a woman between whether you can stay at a job where you're being sexually harassed or not. I mean, it, right. affa- it affects absolutely everything. everything. But most of all, it, I think it's an expression of just whether or not we're willing to just let people die because they don't have money. And, right. and that, that is so fundamental. And to me, you know, you, as you know, like I've been obsessed with the climate crisis now for, for the more than a decade and, and, you know, came to it later than I should have. But I feel like this fundamental question, I always think about that moment in that it was in a Republican debate and you'll remember this better than me because I think it was not, it wasn't 2016. It was, it was, I think it was 2012, that election cycle when there was Mm -hmm. a question, what would you do? And it was to all the Republicans who were running for president what would you do if somebody came to an emergency room and they didn't have insurance? And then somebody in the audience shouted, let them die. Mm-hmm, that's and correct. then everybody cheered. Right. Right? Yes. I think about that moment all the time. Because if you are willing to say, let them die because they didn't have health insurance and mm-hmm. tell yourself a story that rationalizes that about how that's some sort of character flaw of, of, of theirs and, 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 and that you have that right to sit in judgment and say, let them die. Mm-hmm. Then you, when, when, when huge swaths of this planet start to become uninhabitable mm-hmm. as it's already starting to happen and people start getting onto leaky boats um, and start trekking through continents to try to get to safety you, if you have already changed your brain enough to be right. able to say, right. let them, let that, that individual die who showed up at the emergency room because they didn't have health insurance, then you will be able to escalate that mentality to say, let them all die mm-hmm. because what, for whatever reason, they, they you know, their, their, their countries weren't able to adapt to the climate crisis and so on. And that is what is happening on our borders. This is what I, I call climate barbarism. And this is like, we need to, like we need to, when we, when we talk about the climate crisis, it is not just about building seawalls and lowering emissions. You know, it is a fundamental question about what kind of human beings we are going to be in a rocky future that we have locked in. And that's why a green new deal, which links getting our emissions down as quickly as, 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 as is technologically possible with Medicare for all with housing for all, um, you know, with universal childcare, what that is going to allow us to do is hold, it's, it's the shift in values that is going to allow us to navigate this rocky future without becoming monsters. And the monsterizing has begun. You know? Yeah. You know, this is, this is the moment in the podcast now where I have to, I'm going to go dark. Okay. <laughs> and I'm well, usually very optimistic, yeah. but you just said a number of very profound things. And you're right. There's nothing special about the biology or the DNA of a Canadian. You've got the same 23 chromosomes in each one of your cells that I do. And, and every American has, and every Canadian has, and every Bangladeshi has everybody on the planet. Um, but, and that's why it isn't policy, um, uh, alone, but how, how do you get to the point of supporting to believing, as as you rightly said, that, that Canadians believe that if you get sick, you should be able to be healed and not lose your home. And that it's just a fundamental thing. It's like you said, it's not a liberal thing. It's not a conservative thing. It's a human thing. And, and you have to 
this country, which you are also a citizen of, um, I'm sorry, that moment in that 2012 debate where the person in the Republican audience shouted out, let them die, and the cheer, um, that is us. And that's certainly almost half the country would cheer that. Not all, not the majority, I don't believe. I don't believe that. <clears throat> but I believe then there's enough in the other half that say, you know what? Um, I live in Des Moines. I'm in the middle of the country. I'm not, I'm not going to drown. The rising ocean doesn't affect me. Why should I care, really? I mean, I do care, but... Um, and I think that our inability to deal with this, this climate emergency, when I use the word emergency instead of climate change, people are like, what do you mean by emergency? I mean, yes, there's a problem. They believe that there is climate change. It's, they don't deny it. But they don't have a sense that we have to really do anything about it. And if it doesn't affect me, and I got to say, this is the big difference I see between, say, Canadians, not to put them all in the same uh, room, and Americans. And it's so odd, too, because even though, you know, we, English is the official language of the United States, the first American word, the first American English word, officially, was the word we. It's the first word we wrote down, we, the people. And my whole life, I've just wondered what happened to that word, where we, where, we, where I, first of all, I'm for, and see myself as part of the we. And I think that you, you, the part of you that's Canadian and other Canadians, organize yourselves around the principle of we. And we, Americans, organize ourselves around the principle of me. Me, me. How does this affect me? I, my concern is myself and my family. That's what I'm going to take care of. And if I get sick, I'll take care of me. You get sick, you take care of you. You being sick is not my problem. You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, Australia on fire. I'm sad. I'm sorry to see that. Um, not my problem. Mm -hmm. But this, I mean, this relates to how the systems that we live within, right, um, light up different parts of ourselves. Because we all have the me, and we all have the we, and we all have the capacity for incredible generosity and compassion. Um, and we all have the capacity to... We have the capacity, but as Americans... Well, look, I mean, you mentioned Iowa and, and, and the climate crisis. I mean, Iowans have dealt with massive flooding and they come Especially out and year. help their neighbors in unbelievable ways. They don't say, oh, my house is fine. You're, you know, you, you know, you can deal with your house. They fill bales and they, you know, they, 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 I mean, they do amazing things for each other and they cook meals and they, you know, and Paradise, California. I mean, think about what happened there the, in the, in the parking lot of Walmart, you have, basically an anti-Walmart emerge where there's thousands of people who come together to give each other hot food and clothing and so on. So we, we all have it in, in us, including Americans, but, yes, but we, we have a, systems yeah. that suppress it in this country. Right. Um, and and you know, encourage the other kind of behavior. Encourage and we're, also encourage we're very good at charity. hierarchy. We're, we like charity and we will, we will, if your house burns down, we will help you. We absolutely, my neighbor, my, the person down the street, whatever, um, the, you know, the basketball team doesn't have, uh, uniforms because of the fire. We're all chip in and buy, you know, I mean, we're really good at that. And we, we saw ourselves behave that way after nine 11. Um, but we are not wired to really, 
to to think beyond pretty much our um you know the people that we encounter in our daily lives that are nearby to us but and we also have systems uh, political economic and media systems that that discourage the, that, that solidarity that says after 9-11 actually the best thing you can do is go shopping like the ultimate yes. individualist right. thing you can do right um you know, or after the Paradise Fire and these uh, this, these amazing expressions of solidarity, people opening their homes to strangers and saying, you know, I have a spare bedroom. You have all this real estate speculation. You have all this profiteering. Rents are going up. Uh, utilities are going up. People are flipping houses and everybody is stressed out. And then there's this hierarchy of like, wait a minute, you know, you were, you're not homeless because of the fire. You're, you were already homeless before the fire and you're just like a freeloading homeless person. And let's set up this hierarchy of deserving and undeserving poor. And, you know, we've got, and, and then you can see how this gets weaponized against migrants. Mm. Like, well, mm. we've got enough of our problems. Right. We're already seeing this in Australia after the fires right. of like, okay, well, well, we have all this internal displacement. We can't deal with other migrants, right? So I, I, I think the question we need to ask ourselves, and this is where it's, it's connected deeply to, you know, I think why we're both here giving everything, you know, that we have to, to, to support the Sanders campaign is that fundamentally it is about a shift in values from that me to that we to that us. So it is about all these policies, but what connects all the policies is trying to light up the we part of ourselves um, and, you know, when you talk about that, you know, Americans are wired for me, 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 my healthcare system, I always felt, I, I feel like you're too hard on yourselves as Americans about this, because my perspective growing up in Canada was always that, you know, if you, if you can't take healthcare for granted, the most basic thing in your family, if you can't take it for granted that, you're, that your kids are going to be taken care of when they're sick, or, and you can't take it for granted that you'll be able to give them a good education, if, you're, if you don't live in a society that is taking care of the basics, right? And in Canada, we should take care of more basics. You know, we don't take care of housing enough as a basic. We have a homelessness crisis. Um, but, but once the basics are taken care of, you have the bandwidth to think about we. But wh when people are, you know, in the United States where you can't take that for granted, I think a lot of people are making decisions that are actually not about me. They're about their kids. You know, they are, they, 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 they manifest as selfish decisions. So they look like selfish decisions. I have to take this job that, you know, is incredibly unethical or whatever it is. But it's because they're in a state of acute precarity. I mean, when you live in a society that is saying, take nothing for granted, it's everybody on their own. It's, it is lighting up that, that right. part. So once you put in a floor and say the basics are going to be taken care of, that makes a, you know, a sense of we are in this together possible, that if everybody is on their own in a structure being on their own, yes. that it, it's impossible. And, and I couldn't agree more in terms of two with that and why we're both out here um, uh, helping Bernie is because that floor that he would create, he and, I, and the Democratic Senate that is going to get elected uh, this fall, um, when you see, I think Americans, my, my, my unfortunate, um, opinion of my fellow people here is I know that they're not born that way. I know they're not born to, to be selfish in that sense. It's not being selfish. They're just struggling to, because there's a boot on their neck and it's called student debt. It's called, Oh, for God's sake, don't get sick. We'll never be able to afford this, or we're going to have to fight the insurance company because they're never going to pay for this, 
this hospital stay, that constant fear that you that you live with, it's a form of terror. I mean, I, I think it's a form of, the real terrorism to me is that sense that, oh, now I'm in debt till I'm 45 years old to pay off these student loans. I'm not gonna be able to work the jobs that I wanna work. I'm gonna have to take jobs that I hate. And I hate myself for working these jobs. And I go home and I'm miserable. And yeah, and you after a few years of that, you sit around and you go, fuck everybody else. I'm gonna start thinking about me because, you know, let's circle the wagons. That circle the wagons image <laughs> that, uh, that uh, began with our, our, uh, our expansion uh, westward, um, I think is very strong here. And, and if the thing, if we succeed in this election year, I believe that within years, not too far in the distant future, when you don't have student debt, when you don't ever have to worry about if you get sick, where you, where you can attend a political event and because there's a daycare system that you can afford. How many people can't get involved politically because who's going to watch the kids and I can't afford to pay what you'd have to pay? How many people don't get involved because they, 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 they're working two jobs. They're all just to make ends meet. It's so difficult. And they're like, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I do care about politics or what's going on, but man, my life is just, you know, and they're just, they're just, they're ratcheted, you know, and the, the screw keeps turning and turning and turning until the, until the, the screw is stripped. And, and I think that this is, um, you know, it is about me, but it's also about like us and them. Right. Um, because I think that in the, in that environment, um, and then when you layer the climate crisis on top and it is layered on top, like whether or not people are conscious of it or not, it, we all know that our home is in crisis on some level. We know in our DNA that our home, that, that the natural systems on which life depends uh, are unraveling. It's impossible not to know it. And, and that doesn't necessarily serve as a kind of a wake up call, like, Hey, you know, let's all, you know, join the Paris Accord and, and, and keep to our emission reduction targets. You know, in the context of fear and terror that you're describing, it makes people putty in the hands of right. a Trump, um, you know, and this isn't just happening in the United States where people are just, you know, we, you know, we, we are, we are 40 years into the neoliberal project. Um, and, and, and even the countries that had universal programs, they have been eroded and eroded and eroded and people are getting gigs instead of jobs and they have no idea whether their industries are going to exist in a few years. And on top of that, they don't know whether the planet itself is safe. And so when a strongman figure comes along and says, you are the in-group and these are out-groups within mm -hmm. our country and mm -hmm. across the borders and and, and yes, things are tough, but we are going to protect you. You will be on the inside and, and you'll get a sort of a perverse and a, even a sadistic joy in the fact that as bad as things are, they're better for you than they are for that guy over there. Right. 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 And, and, you know, we are in a moment of, of sadism. It isn't, you it know, is. it isn't just it is inequality. Sadistic. There is a sadism That's to right. it. And a joy, a sadism with joy that the wealthy somehow, um, they're so giddy with how much they own now, with how much they have. And, and 
the way that they look at at everybody else who's fighting for the crumbs, it it really is, um, you know, some sick version of the Hunger Games. I mean, Hunger Games is already a sick version of a of a dystopian society that's not really that that far into the future in the sense that, yeah, yeah, sorry, sucker, you know, um, it's just the way it works. It's survival of the fittest, and we're the fittest. We have the money. And good luck. Well, I, you know, I think they may be overplaying their hands. I absolutely. Oh no, no, no. This is the okay. Here's the good. Here's the good news. Because they have behaved this way, because they've made life so difficult for people struggling to live from week to week, paycheck to paycheck. That that statistic I'm sure you mm-hmm. saw where the average American doesn't have five hundred dollars on hand mm-hmm. if there was a car that broke down or their a loved one passed away. They fly across the country to the funeral. These, you know, really kind of basic things. And and I think all of that is meant to crush the spirit because the greatest fear I'm sure the wealthy have is that if the spirit rose, if the spirit got up, if, if what, they're so stunned this week, you must follow this on the news, the pundits and everything with how Bernie is now doing so well and how he's surging and, and they're all they're all wandering around Iowa like, how did this happen? What's going on here? The other candidates are like, wait a minute, and they don't they don't they don't get it. But if you come just a little bit outside your bubble, uh, and and go around this state, go around practically any state, you can see that the people have had it. And you know, Bernie Sanders is giving them this way out. And I I think. It's possible that, that there's going to be a huge surprise this year. A surprise not to you or I, maybe, or the people listening to this, but, you know. I'm surprised as hell, Michael. You are. I can't believe yeah. what we are living. I yeah. can't believe. I feel, honestly, I mean, as somebody who spends their time looking at really terrifying climate news, and yeah. honestly, I feel a lot of the time I feel so sad yeah. that we have to be alive at this moment where we are watching the beauty of our world destroyed and we have to think about you know a future for for our kids that is unthinkable i mean my my son is such a nature kid he mm-hmm. is not so interested in humans he loves <laughs> he loves whales and dolphins and you know otters and he was born you know by the pacific ocean and that is his home and he and the idea that he has to watch you know that, that he has to watch this disappear that, mm. that i have to tell him you know that, that one day that that um you know that, that, that the salmon aren't coming back and all of the, these whole entire ecosystems that right. rely on it and indigenous ways of life and i mean i feel like some people say, you know, we're lucky we're alive at, at, at this moment where we have the power to change things. And I've never felt that. I have felt like, what? I, think, I don't want to watch this. There's so much grief in it. Right. And, and I don't want to keep watching, you know, islands destroyed by hurricanes and incredible cities flooded. And, um, you know, I, and, and, and we are like out of time. Like out of time, and I think we were out of time some time ago. This is okay. I might, be, I don't know. I might be more depressed than you. Well, let so me just finish this to, thought. Yeah, let me could, just finish this yeah. thought. 
I mean, but what I never truly imagined is that is that in the nick of time, and and not to say that we can stop um, a, a, a lot of loss. I mean, we've locked in a lot of it, right? But I but we do have enough time to prevent truly catastrophic unraveling if we actually get our emissions down to zero, which I'm not saying there's any guarantee that we would do. But what we have now for the first time is we have a candidate who is talking about solutions to this crisis on the scale of the crisis. Right. I mean, the the trillions of dollars that Bernie is talking about marshalling, mm. and not just in the United States, but internationally to actually get the whole world mm -hmm. um, at the table once again and really moving this quickly, this is never happened. But what has also never happened is a proud democratic socialist connected to social movements. I mean, we have known Bernie forever. Bernie, right. Bernie's the guy, the guy who speaks at our anti-war protests and our climate right. marches. And you know, he's the the was the one politician we could depend on, right? He's a movement-connected politician who's running a campaign like a movement. That's not FDR. That is mm -hmm. different. That's mm -hmm. more like Eugene Debs. Mm -hmm. There has never been a movement candidate mm -hmm. in the history of this country right. as close to the White House as Bernie Sanders. Right. And it is my incredible honor and privilege, and I think we all have to feel this, to be alive to see that, to see us surge at the last possible moment. I mean, Michael, you are a filmmaker. The drama of this, it's crazy mm -hmm. that we are in a moment of such profound peril, mm -hmm. but also this promise like right. these the, these these polls are mind-blowing yeah they are and not to say bernie's going to fix everything with a magic wand but we actually have a fighting chance to to stop the worst impacts of climate of the yeah. climate crisis and achieve the shift in values that will allow us to be kind to each other and care for each other and hold on to our humanity as this hits and when i you know, when I'm up there, I, I feel my grandfather with me who died 22 years ago, who was blacklisted, fired for organizing a union, you know, in the 1940s and then blacklisted and was never able to work in his chosen profession again. Um, he never would have believed this. My family had to leave this country because they opposed the Vietnam War. And they never, they still don't believe this, my parents, <laughs> you know, really? that this could happen. So like we have our ancestors with us. Right. This is history that we're living. No, and I, that part I feel being here in Iowa this last week, it is happening. It really is happening. And I want people listening to this to have a real sense that this isn't just, we're not just, this isn't just to hear ourselves talk anymore or to, yeah, let's all get together and we're, you know, um, carrying our banner, marching down the street. This, when he says that when he enters the Oval Office, he's taking all of us in there with him. He actually really means that, that he will govern as the president of the United States and the leader of a movement that is going to go after these things that are killing us. Um, and especially, especially this issue of what we've done to the planet. And, um, but, you know, I, I have this... Um, I don't think a day goes by where I don't tear up just watching the news or reading the news or whatever. And, um, and I, and I just think, don't, don't sink into your despair about this. This is, you know, this is, um, but I, I, I'm one of, you have to convince me because I'm one of these people that just believe that 
maybe maybe it is too late too late in the sense that we have destroyed certain things that we're not going to get back no i mean we've 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 lost we've lost you know we have the the that the space for humanity to live on this planet is contracting right this is why it's connected with this rise of xenophobia and 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 supremacist logics around the world um, we are. We have lost natural wonders. We've basically lost the Great Barrier Reef. Um, you know, we are losing the Amazon rainforest. We are. You know, we in Iceland. They're having funerals for glaciers. I mean, this is stuff that we don't get back. Um, so I'm not here to to to, to say you know, this is th- that the impossible is possible. That this is a rosy picture. I I believe that it is possible to protect a space. For humanity where we can live well if we live very differently and if we treat each other very very differently and this is this is a lifeline and what the intergovernmental panel on climate change told us in october 2018 um, is that we need to keep temperatures warming below a, a warming levels of 1.5 degrees celsius they said that we can do this if we cut emissions in half globally by 2020 that means that a rich country like the United States, which has been polluting for longer and more than any country on the planet, has to move faster. Bernie's the one who gets this. He, has, he gets that because of how much pollution this country has put out, that the way to galvanize the rest of the world is to do more faster and to put some real money on the table. We haven't seen that kind of truly internationalist leadership from a U.S. government. People say, oh, Obama got it on climate change. Please. You know, I was at the U.N. summits when Obama would come in, you know, with his negotiators, dashing the hopes of small island nations and Africans would be marching out of sessions, calling it genocide because the the, the temperature levels that the U.S. were calling for would, would, would mean that Africa would burn. So, you know, we've never tried this before. The U.S. has never led before. The Obama administration did great PR and said, oh, we got the Paris Accord. The Paris Accord was non-binding. That's why, you know, and and if you added up what all of the governments, including the U.S., brought to the table, it would have led to warming of about four degrees or more, right? So it didn't matter that they said we have to keep temperatures below 1.5. They weren't willing to do it. They made that very, very clear. So, you know, what Bernie is, 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 is bringing to the table it has never been seen before. We have to count on other people on this planet having a survival instinct and being inspired and pushing their governments, which is what they're doing in Australia right now, because this isn't the only government that, that's crazy. I mean, look at the Australian government. This Scott Morrison, his, his country is on fire, and he still wants to dig the world's biggest coal mine. I mean, there is a, there is a madness that right. is gripped. It's and madness. so the question is, is it, it, are people going to wake up? <laughs> and that is what this campaign represents, a, 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 an awakening. Um, and I mean, what, coming back to what I was saying before about the history, I mean, I think part of what is happening here, and I could be wrong, and I'd really love to hear your perspective on it, but like, I feel like you know, there's so many ways in which this country denies its history, right? It denies it. It denies the history of, of genocide against indigenous people doesn't want to talk about slavery. It's constantly about, you know, the reboot. Let's start over. You know, it's, it's the fresh start country, you know. Um, but one of the things I think we talk about least is, is the war on the left in this country. And, mm. and the fact that there's been a very, very dirty war mm. waged on socialists in this country. Mm-hmm. Black socialists, mm-hmm. democratic socialists, mm-hmm. the tra- trade unionists. 
it's been bloody. It's been bloodiest for black workers, um, but it's been it's been bloody for white white workers too. And the suppression of that history um, worked for a really long time. But that's what I feel is lifting. Like I mean, maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like um, I, I feel like something is happening where the deep roots of revolutionary movements in this country are reawakening. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel like this campaign at its best should represent. And this is why, honestly, I'm sad about my friends who aren't part of it yet, mm. because they're, you know, there's, they, you know, it's not perfect. And there are reasons to not join. And, and I've heard those reasons. What are they? You know, I think there are people who still feel that Bernie isn't centering racial justice enough, isn't centering um, women's issues enough. And I mean, I don't want to debate those points because no. I think, you know, I think, I, I think there are valid criticisms. And I also think that it's also the result of unfair smears. I think people are remembering the 2016 campaign and they aren't looking at the ways in which the campaign has changed. The reason why I think we need to understand how historic this is, is I don't like, I don't want people to sit this out who have been fighting their whole lives and their parents and generations right. before them right. have been fighting for real deep change in this country right. because it's a privilege to be part of this. It's, I mean, I feel, I, I, I don't feel lucky about, like I said, I don't feel lucky about a lot of things about being alive right now in this moment in history. I don't like watching the world burn. Um, I don't like watching Donald Trump uh, and this, in this moral degeneration. Um, but I never thought I would see, people's courage rise like this and 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 people just drop the shame about actually being on the left and actually being mm-hmm. part of a revolutionary movement mm-hmm. and well, feel you thank young that. people for that because you, you look at the polls people under the age of 40 don't believe capitalism is the system that was certainly the form of capitalism that we live under now is not the system that is the correct system and that they are they don't see anything wrong with the idea of socialism they understand what it means in terms of the fairness of it, of, of how we divide things up and how we treat each other and all that. It's, it's, it's not surprising to me that, um, that this, a younger generation that my generation has, has raised one of the good things you could say about boomers, we may not be uh, leaving the world in the shape that we thought we'd be leaving it in as we move on. But, uh, we certainly raised some good kids who aren't haters who care about this planet and who understand that the economic system that we have is unjust and it's unfair and it's not democratic. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about, about that piece of it, but I, but I have the same, you know, friends who are liberals and, and who, um, when I start talking about Bernie, they're like, well, he's saying all, all this, he can't afford all this stuff. They can't, we're not gonna be able to do all this. We can't so negative about, we can't do this. We can't make this happen. We can't, um, and I said, why, do, why are you taking that approach to when, when, Actually, yes, we can do all these. What happened to your Obama, oh, yes, we can <laughs> attitude here? Uh, because this isn't PR this time. This is the real deal. And, um, and, and you know, you're right, 16, that really shocked people. It um, We elected, the majority of the people voted for our first woman president. And the fact that she didn't get to enter the Oval Office after winning the election as stunning i think and still stunning as a strong feminist voice i mean i mean people listening to this are probably that you're for bernie and not for one of the women that are running i mean 
you know, how, how do you, what's your answer to that? I mean, people must say this to you or women must say this to you or, you know, uh, Naomi, I mean, come on, enough of this. 45 men have been president of this country. And um, maybe we should, one of the things we need to try differently is uh, the majority gender should have a stronger say in this. Well, it, it matters to me that Bernie has a lot of really strong women around him. And, you know, if you look at who's out there, you know, his most powerful surrogates, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, uh, Pramila Jayapal, um, Nina Turner from the very beginning, of course, you know, and Jane Sanders as well. Um, and, and, you know, inside the campaign, there are so many strong women, um, you know, heading up communications, uh, political organizing, and deputy campaign director. I mean, if I wasn't seeing this, I would, I would, I wouldn't be as excited as I am right now. I guess my politics are just a little bit different. Like I've never been obsessed with sort of representation at the top. I'm not saying it doesn't matter about having a, a woman president. I, I, I would love to see a, a woman president one day. I think Elizabeth Warren is, is a very strong candidate. And if she were to win this primary, which it doesn't look like she's going to do, I would campaign like hell for her. But I'm backing the candidate who I feel has the policies that meet our era, that meet the stakes of our moment. And the biggest difference when it comes to climate between with, between Warren and Sanders has to do with what I was talking about before, the internationalist piece. It, internationalism is a really key part of my politics, and it's only you know it, it has to do with having covered wars and 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 being immersed in the climate crisis and understanding these are crises that we don't solve just as nation states. That there's you know Elizabeth Warren talks about economic patriotism being the the, the centerpiece of her Green New Deal. She talks about greening the military. There's no discussion about um, putting real money on the table. Um, to, to, to make good on what the U.S. owes to the world. She doesn't have Bernie's history um, when it comes to opposing foreign intervention. You know, I first talked to Bernie after I published The Shock Doctrine. He called me out of the blue. He said, uh, you know, I'm not even going to try to do a Bernie accent, but he said, you know, <laughs> I went to the University of Chicago when all those goddamn Chicago boys were there. <laughs> right. um, and I watched Milton Friedman and all those guys getting those getting getting the getting the Chicago boys ready to go to Chile and Argentina mm -hmm. and do all that. And he's like, I think we should have a town hall meeting in Burlington, Vermont, and we'll tell people about it. And I and he said, I think we could get five hundred people to come out for that. Did you, did you, did you we go? didn't. We back and forth. We didn't end up doing it. But I always mm -hmm. I look back and I have an, uh, this email, about, uh, and it it just makes me laugh that he really thought we could pull five hundred people. That would that was going to be the big victory. Right. And now here he is, you know, speaking to what twenty five thousand people in Queens. Right. right. Um, but that's the kind of thing that makes me trust Bernie because I feel like it, it's that, and it's 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 the movement piece of it that um, we are up against such fierce powers that are going to try to stop whatever we try to do, even the most incremental changes, they will come down like a ton of bricks, right? right. And it's that steadfastness, it's that rootedness, right? I mean, right. you need deep roots when you are when you are in a storm. It's something else I've noticed covering disasters. Um, and Bernie has those roots, and I trust that. And I also 
do feel Bernie listens. You know, people, he has this reputation for being the guy who hasn't changed his views mm-hmm. in 40 years. But mm-hmm. the, the truth is, it's not true. He, he's changed on Israel-Palestine. Um, mm-hmm. he is, he's, he's, he's evolved to really grasp more and more the, uh, uh, the, the extent of the climate crisis. Uh, he's moved on mass incarceration and criminal justice, on yes. gun violence. Right. And I notice that it's often because of women um, close to him, who mm-hmm. who he does listen to. You know, I think a lot of really gifted politicians have the knack of making people feel heard even when they're not being listened to. People feel heard. And Bernie actually has the the opposite, which is that he makes people feel unheard even when he is listening. Right. <laughs> he sort of like gets it right away and he's like, yeah, yeah, I got it, got it, moving on. Okay, you I know? got it, yeah. <laughs> it's like, but he does, he, <clears throat> he evolves, but the core, right. the core values, the core principles haven't shifted uh, and they've animated his life and that really matters. And then the other piece of it is just, we, we need a movement to win this. And this campaign is like nothing we've seen before because they really are organizing as they go. Um, it's and, so exciting to see here oh, the yeah. level of the volunteers and the uh, the commitment, and, and it's freezing cold yeah. here. And it's it's uh, I mean, as a Canadian, I'm, you would probably call this ball, nothing balmy weather. Um, but um, <laughs> it's called winter, guys. Get is, <laughs> but it's but the everybody out there. I mean, it's just. We've gone yeah. to the smallest towns and there's not enough room and there's always an overflow crowd that we have to go talk to because we right. don't want them. They're standing out in the cold. It's just, it's- There's re- that organizing and these amazing conversations that people are having. You know, when I was when I was in New Hampshire, I spoke to a group of, of canvassers and I was, you know, helping them, you know, hone the messaging at the doorstep as one, we do when we talk to canvassers before they go out, you know, remember to say this, remember to say that, but not, but and this guy came up to me afterwards and he said, you know what I find is the most important thing is actually just to listen, give people a space to share their stories. They, everybody wants to share, they, everybody has a story to tell. And once we do that, then we can talk about the policies. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And that is really what is revolutionary about this is it's bringing people out of their isolation and, and, and this thing that you thought you had to carry all your own, on your own that you thought was because you had failed, because you were, you know, didn't work hard enough or hadn't organized enough or somehow are deficient is actually part of a systemic crisis. And you have all of this company and there are systemic solutions that, in response to it. So there's that kind of organizing, which is almost like consciousness raising, you know, like it's, that, it's not like getting out the vote, right? And then there's like supporting actual strikes all along the way, right? And 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 bringing um, attention and 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 resources to you know the LA teachers who who are striking, um, you know, to to be able to to serve their communities and their students better. So the organizing is multi-layered, right? It's it's basic political education, right? It is that you know on the ground organizing to get out the vote, um, and it's also strengthening, rebuilding. Um, the 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 organizers that are trying to rebuild after attacks on membership based organizations after so many years, right? Um, this is so significant to the labor movement, I think, and 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 groups like the Sunrise Movement who are, who are 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 trying to have a membership based youth organization across the country and are doing such incredible organizing, or the Dream Defenders, um, doing the same for racial justice and against police violence. You know, this is, um, these are the forces that we will need if we get a progressive in office. 
And, uh, and that's what I find uh, very exciting as well. We are, um, we're out of time here. Uh, for Just tell me one more time before you, you leave uh, that, uh, that it's not too late. Uh, and I'm referring specifically yeah. uh, to climate because I have just felt uh, that we have totally screwed ourselves and and it's not just the number of species that we've lost now that are gone forever. Uh, the ice that has melted that's gone, at least for now, maybe forever. Um, I, um, I don't think I'm alone in this sense of we don't want to say it out loud because we, we think saying it out loud, it's, well, then, but we're, then it happens. It is happening. But, um, um, you know, we should have listened uh, to you and Bill McKibben and everybody else 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And, um, and when you all said that we can't get above 350 parts per million, the carbon in the atmosphere, or we're, we, because we won't be able to fix it. We won't be able to regenerate it. It's mm-hmm. where, what are we at now? 415 mm-hmm. part, yeah. Yeah. parts per million. Uh, I'm just beside myself with this. It's like, we okay now we can't turn it back we went past the marker um before we leave before i leave yeah <laughs> i just need you to lift my spirit yeah. and not don't not false hope i don't i'm not asking you to help me feel better mm-hmm. i want to hear like yeah. that which is going to take us and save us because i've never believed that we're going to kill the planet the planet will kill us long before it's uh, the, well, the it nature, won't be intentional. It'll just shake no, no. us off. Well, it's yeah, not malicious. Yes, exactly. No, the it's Earth's not, not it's, a terrorist. <laughs> we're the ones with the problem. Yes, we're, <laughs> and it, and it will just go. Okay, we don't need this anymore. And there don't blame we, her. It's not her fault. <laughs> She's just trying to protect herself. <laughs> exactly. That's my point. So um, help me out here. Look, we are going to be living in a on a different Earth. You know, Bill Bill McKibben published a a, a book a few years back called. Earth, <laughs> they changed the spelling of, of, of it um, because it really is a different planet that that, that we've created. It, 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 that that those parts per million do matter, um, and we cannot. So so here's what we can do: um, we can do everything possible to keep warming levels below that threshold after which we pass all kinds of tipping points that where you know, un- unfathomable number of lives hang in the balance, right? Which is why I feel like we can't give in to that feeling, that sort of doomism, that sort of Jonathan Franzen in the New Yorker going like, oh gosh, all you activists with your activism stuff. And, you know, don't you realize it's too late? Let's all just kind of go upstate and plant our gardens. And That's what he uh, said in the New Yorker a few months he, ago. He, he did, he, he did. He said, and, and we, the, stop, let's stop spending our money on building uh, bullet trains or something that would be more environmentally uh, sound. And we should be spending our federal tax dollars moving people to higher ground building the seawalls, these things that, I mean, it was- We're going to have to do a lot. Um, and, you know, I, I said earlier that, that, that the space for humanity is contracting, but this is a big planet and there it is possible for us to live well and treat each other well um, with, within a habitable space for humanity. 
if we radically lower emissions and we begin to rapidly draw down carbon from the atmosphere, right? So one of the things that I find most exciting about um, the Green New Deal is, is, is looking at the old New Deal and, and looking at the parts of it that we really need to, to learn from. And there are big warnings in there. Um, and there are also sources of big inspiration. I mean, and we know about the warnings uh, that, that African-American workers were left out, worked in agriculture, domestic workers were left out. Um, many of the programs uh, discriminated wildly against African-Americans and Mexicans, particularly in the South. Um, but the, the New Deal also did some absolutely incredible things. And we still are using the infrastructure in our libraries and schools and reservoirs and hundreds of public parks um, and, and and state parks. Um, one of the program that 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 I think is maybe most relevant to us is the Civilian Conservation Corps, which FDR launched uh, immediately after taking office because he had started it in New York State when he was governor. He'd started something similar where it's always worth remembering that in the 1930s, there was this um, epic financial crisis, the, the, obviously the Great Depression, and that was the primary thing that the, that the New Deal was trying to address. But there was also the greatest ecological crisis the U.S. had ever experienced, which was the Dust Bowl. And there was a, there was a huge crisis of soil erosion and deforestation. So FDR launched the Civilian Conservation Corps, which sent out a couple million young men into... My dad was one of them. Was he really? Yes. See, mm. I, oh, okay. Now I know they're telling us we're out of time, but see, now we've just hit on like one of my favorite topics. No, no, I want to hear all about go, it. Go but ahead. they sent these young men out and they planted 2.3 billion trees, which is more than half the trees mm. ever planted in the United States. And that, you know, that's what we can do. And if we planted, you know, a two, if we planted 2.3 billion trees, that would draw a whole lot of carbon down from the atmosphere. It's not instead of getting off of fossil fuels, we also have to do that. But if we did both of those, and we were part of inspiring the rest of the world to do the same, then we are creating habitat if we do it right, if we have indigenous communities leading this and, you know, we're not just planting tree plantations, but actually kind of rewilding the world, we're rebuilding habitat for animals. So it's going to be a different world. It does not have to suck. Um, you know, I think that Hollywood has given us a very sort of linear idea of the future, which is like it's either, I don't know, kind of like we think about the future, it's either it's either just us continuing in, you know, without change, or it's some version of apocalyptic breakdown, cannibalism, um, you know, us only way worse, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, writers like Kim Stanley Robinson and others, um, I, I, you know, try to give us images of the world that are, that are not telling us that everything's going to be okay, you know, that are telling us that it's going to be rocky, and we are going to face losses. Um, but there can be there can be w ways of organizing ourselves as humans within that within that rocky future um, that are actually better than the present. And you know, I don't know. So it's not like a rah rah. We can do this. <laughs> um, it's not. It's you know, we we have fucked up hugely. Um, we should be, in my opinion, at least as afraid of things getting meaner, um, more hyper-individualist, more racist, more supremacist, more patriarchal, if we do not change our 
system and the underlying values. We should be as afraid of that as we are afraid of storms and droughts and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when we talk about not me, us, and this fundamental shift of like whether or not we're going to say everybody has a right to healthcare, everybody has a right to housing, we are um, we're going to welcome refugees, we are not going to separate um, families, we are going to end mass incarceration. I mean, these are expressions of values that will that will determine whether or not we face these crises uh, with our humanity or whether or not we become our worst nightmares. That's what's on the line here. I mean, like Rosie Perfect left the station. Like we are looking at a rocky future. This is why it is such a goddamn joke when people call Bernie Sanders radical. The future is radical. Mm. The future is radical. Mm. We have locked in a radical future. And the question is, are we gonna take some control over that radical so that we are able to navigate that in ways that preserves much of the living systems of our planet Mm. and allows us to treat each other well, or are we just going to let it burn on its own? But there is no future that looks like the present. I believe millions of people are ready and waiting right now uh, to, um, to take that stand. I think we're going to see it. We're going to see it this year. Um, I think enough people do know what you just said, what the options are. Um, And there is no, no perfect planet that may not be in our lifetime. uh, But um, somehow, um, look, if I can get over it, (laughs) it's like, I'm, um, I, I just will not, I can't sink into that despair. And, and I've met and seen enough people on this campaign trail to actually believe that this is going to happen. And people listening to this should really think about getting on, on board the train. Oh, yes. Um, because, by the, and, and while well, we yes, we're going to vote for Bernie, but Bernie will be the first to tell you, he's not the conductor of the train. We're all the conductors of this train. We are all, the train only moves through our power, uh, not through one individual, not through one, uh, you know, leader. Um, but the forces against us here are profound. In Trump's rally in New Jersey this week, where they had the helicopter shot of people in this large parking lot full of humans waiting. Some of them waited for over 24 hours to get into the rally. They couldn't fit everybody in into this, into this place. It was, um, it, it really should um, remind everybody that whatever minute, hour, day you have in this year of 2020, to get involved, to do something. Um, you don't want to see what the picture is going to look like um, if it happens again. And and it can happen again. Trump, it will be. I don't think, do we have four more years to just not only do nothing, but actually help make it worse? I don't. We don't have four more years. No. I mean, we didn't have these four years. We didn't and have we these most, four years. We, and we most certainly don't have another four years. And the other thing I think people really need to understand is that four more years of Trump are not just these four years extended. A second term is different than the first term. And I, that really hit me after Modi was reelected in India. And the first thing he did was um, you know, go after Kashmir 
turn off the internet, put the, you know, millions of people under lockdown. And then he starts stripping Muslims of their citizenship. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, the, the, the sort of pogrom like violence in Modi's second term has vastly escalated. Mm -hmm. Um, So what these, the way these guys see a reelection, you know, the kind of license um, that, 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 that empowers them with, uh, is truly terrifying. So anybody telling themselves a story of like, well, it wasn't as bad as we thought or something like that, we can just have four more years. It's not gonna, it's, it's not gonna be the same four years. It would be different. On that note. Get out of your house, step away from Twitter. If you feel despair, get in rooms full of other people. Nobody can handle this all on their own. You know, like I was, I was on book tour in the fall. I was talking to people about the climate crisis. It was really hard, Michael. Like I was feeling like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can just make people feel hopeful about this crisis, just me and my book. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel completely different when I'm out on the campaign trail because it's because th- what this moment is about is like, this is a movement. Nobody's right. carrying this on their own, right. right? We're carrying this together and that makes everything possible. So get out there. Get out there. Um, we'll be there with you. Um, tell us where you're at. We'll come to where you're at. Come to us. Um, whatever it is, but uh, together, millions of us. Um, um, I do believe uh, can make this happen, but it has to happen now. Uh, we're not going to get a second chance on this. So everybody, uh, I know you're busy. I know it's uh, the struggle every day, every week. Um, you get home and maybe you get a half hour with the kids because you're having to work uh, so hard to get by. Um, um but um, there's no choice. <clears throat> I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry. I'm, uh, uh, I'm really honored that you uh, came on my po- podcast here today, uh, Naomi. And um, I uh, and I'm sorry. Um, I have to thank Canada <laughs> for giving us Margaret Atwood and you and other Canadians. I'm, um, and thank God for your parents too, for having the courage, for your dad to say, you know, as, as Muhammad Ali said, no Vietnamese ever tried to kill me. Your dad made a decision to, to say, I'm not going to kill people. And so I have to leave such a courageous move that, um, I'm certain wasn't easy. I'm so grateful for your existence on this planet. And I think you're going to and are one of the people that are going to help uh, save us. So, um, but I say that knowing that we are only going to do this if we all save ourselves. And do not think that Michael Moore or Naomi Klein or Bernie Sanders, and you know we're going to take care of all this for you. <laughs> That's not how it's going to work. It's going to it's going to it's going to require everybody, and um, and we'll do whatever we can to help. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Such a pleasure. Pleasure, privilege, all the peas. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you uh, very much. And um, we'll talk to everybody uh, in, a, in a few days here. Talk to you soon. And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I gladly stand up next to you defend her still today cause there ain't no doubt I love this land
God bless the USA.